Dotnet Rocks episode 821 with guest John Papa, recorded live Monday, November 5th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Tampa! It's .NET Rocks! Love Clearwater. Oh, yes. Beautiful we fell in love here. with this place. Our driver actually never yeah. wants to leave. Yeah, we He's maybe fine. have to drive the rest of the trip ourselves now, because I think yeah. he's stuck here for good. He found the beach, yeah. you know. He found the bar. He was done. He was done. And he here we are. This is as far south as we're going to go this trip. That's right. Unlike when I said Toronto was as far north as we were. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yes. Right. Russ Fostino yeah. is here. He's happy we're finally in. Because we've never been able to do we've Florida. We tried. Been. We tried in 2005. Yeah, and then a hurricane showed up. And right. I remember sending a message to to the organizing group and just saying, we need to decide when it's not when we have to abort going. I didn't think right. we had to at that point. Right. We should talk about it. And their comeback was, don't go. Don't go. It's dead. Right. You know, you're not coming down there. And that and, was unfortunate. In 2010, we didn't have enough time. To, yeah. We didn't have enough stops. We only made it as far as Atlanta, yeah. which so, is not the same. So Russ Fostino's here. Russ, give it a hand. Big hand for us. Likewise, Joe Healy's in the audience. Joe. And our guest is John Papa. I'm just saying. But before we talk to John, we have a little business to take care of. Uh, What do you got? Well, the first thing, uh, the first item is Better Know Framework. All right, bud, what do you got? Well, today I went looking for some JavaScripty things in Ooh. honor of our guest, mm, good idea. John Papa, who's a big fan. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash JSAwful. JSAwful. Awful, as in, you remember the awful, awful, right? Right. Okay. Well, this is an excerpt from Douglas Crockford's book, ah. JavaScript, The Good Parts. Right. And this is Appendix A, The Good Parts, but... Really, it's about the bad parts. <laughs> it's about the awful parts. Awful parts, Appendix A. It's global variables, scope, semicolon insertion, reserved words, Unicode, type of, parse int, floating point. These are all the awful parts of JavaScript? No, these are the good parts. Oh, so where are the awful parts? The title of this page is Awful Parts, Appendix A. JavaScript, the good parts. Okay, I get it. Yes. But it's Awful Parts Appendix A. Okay. In this chapter, I present the problematic features of JavaScript that are not easily avoided. You must be aware of these things. So, in the realm of good parts, we have the the gotchas. Right. JavaScript gotchas from Douglas Crockford. Awesome. Who is, uh, last time I checked, pretty much an authority on JavaScript. He's the guy. He is the guy. Yeah. So, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of one of our road trip shows, and this one came from show 811, which is the one we did with Alan Stevens and Leon Gersing, where we talked about leading developers. 
And this comment comes from Tony Verguldi Jr., who said, uh, great meeting you on Saturday at the Philly show. So, obviously, he listened to the show we did in Columbus right. with Alan and Leon. Right. And then he actually saw us a couple days later in Philly. Yeah. Uh, and he said, um, as I mentioned, there are three things that stood out to me about this show. Uh, developers should have a chance to go on site to see the software in action and ask clients why they use the software a certain way. Sometimes their way is different because the software needs improvements, other times because there are issues in the software. Other than the first software company I worked at, no company has wanted to send a developer to the client. I've even pushed for this and gotten no as an answer. Yeah. That, which is interesting, right? Depends on your grooming habits and your interpersonal skills. Well, I think, I think that might be part of it, but I think it's also they just don't believe... You know, actually understanding how clients... It's funny because this is what we're doing. My whole, The whole tour is talking right. about actually understanding how clients use your software. And and another part of it is, you know, also business decision because you don't want your... You don't want the people who are working for you cutting you out and going right to your customer. Yeah, I don't know if that's a big, a huge issue, but I, I get what you're be. talking about. Uh, Tony goes on to say, I try to interview at least four times a year because we're talking about how developers don't interview. Right. Not because I am upset with where I'm working or where looking to leave, but to see what opportunities are out there. In addition, it allows me to see where the market is heading, what skills are in demand and so mm -hmm. forth. It does not matter to me if the interview works out or not, but sometimes an opportunity does come along that I will accept. Mm -hmm. And here's the final part of that. As you, meaning me, Richard, and I discussed on Saturday, saying no to the work you do not want is harder at a company. However, I liked your perspective on making well-known what type of work you would rather focus on and even moving your position in that direction. Mm. I have molded positions to where I think they needed to go, but sometimes it has not always worked out. I would love to get your thoughts on this. So I mean, this whole conversation, which came back to, you know, Alan and Leon talking about leading developers right. and really leading your career. You know, as opposed to managing your career, picking direction, things you actually wanted to do, and then letting folks know you're, you, that's what you want. Right. I think it works equally as well inside as well as outside. You just have to be visible in that. You see the converse of this all the time that people think subconsciously or whatever that they have a role that is expected of them. Right. And therefore they can't go outside that role. But once you actually say, no, that's what I want to do, and you just simply ask for that type of work, chances are you'll get it. Well, I, and I also think, and I've seen lots of folks who get into this situation, you get hired for a particular skill set, but that's not what you want to do for the rest of your life. Right. So there's also a part of you saying, hey, I know you want me for this. This is where I want to go. How are we going to divide my time between these things? Right. And ultimately, they're all going to be valuable to you. But if I, I only get to do what I used to do, I'm going to get bored. I mean, I'll right. go somewhere else to do what I want to do. Right. But let's make sure we can do both. And and being pretty upfront about, you know, sure. is this going to be a 60-40 split or this is going to be a 50-50 split? Like, how do we do that? Make it a win-win. They're all achievable. Yeah. So, uh, Tony, thanks so much for your email. And it was great to meet you in, in Pittsburgh as well. And so, well, let's get a .NET Rocks mug out to you. And Absolutely. if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the site at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses online now. They produce about 8 to 10 new courses a month. And uh, by in, led done by industry experts and MVPs and people such as appear on our show. Hmm? Such like, as Mr. Papa. Like John Papa. And uh, they cover a wide range of topics, just about everything on the Microsoft stack, plus Java, Android, iOS, uh, server technology, client technology, um, single page applications, and all of that. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month, Pluralsight.com. A proud supporter of .NET Rocks. And with that, let's give John Papa another great big hand. Woo! Yeah.
Uh, X Microsofty grows up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that could be the subtitle of our, you know. Um, John originally was on our show when he did work for Microsoft and since then has uh, scored his dream job. Wouldn't you say it's your dream job where you are now? Yeah, I really enjoy it over there. Over where? I'm with the, the big mouse of the big ears, Disney World. Yeah, I've heard of that place. Apparently you own Star Wars now, too. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you, I wish. Are you yeah. a distinguished Imagineer yet? No, I am not. No, I am not. I'm very indistinguished. <laughs> but that must be a really fun place with obviously lots of perks. It's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. And they're, they're big on technology as well. So I took your uh, SPA course, and that came out a couple of months ago. And yes. it was great. And what I liked about it was it wasn't just about single-page applications, but you managed to touch on so many architectures and technologies that it was really great to see a practical and simple uh, example of, you know, stem to stern of all of the, of the patterns and technologies involved in an SPA, and, uh, it, which is basically any modern app. Yeah, and that so. was the whole idea behind it was that I'm, I, I get tired of these demos where you're just introducing a new technology and nobody tells you why you should use it mm -hmm. right, or where you should use it. Or so where it fits in the big picture, perhaps. That was the whole idea. And I think I spent the first couple of modules just laying the foundation without even talking about SPA. Right. And then I built on top of that. Right. So, yeah, you started on the server side uh, in Azure, uh, went into repositories in the repository pattern and then the unit of work. Uh, got into web API and then, then, and only then started on the, uh, client side. Yeah, exactly. And you could use the same server side technology with any kind of an app, really. Yeah. Well, it's something you talked about in, in sort of your preamble here as well is this idea that this stack, this approach to building software, which really speaks to a client with some intelligence, there's a whole raft of technologies that can do that. It's, yes. this is not nothing to do with HTML5 per se. Heck, it would work in Flash. Exactly. It's. I mean, we're building in this world now where the clients are being much and much smarter. Mm -hmm. We can build apps for any kind of device, any kind of operating system. And SPA is the uh, term du jour these days to talk about it. But it's really, it's really about building smart applications with a good UX. You could almost call, I mean, OWA, the Outlook Web Access, started all of this way back when. And it was pretty much a SPA the very first time they made it. Yeah, yeah, it really was. They had the rich version and they had the poor man's version, if right. I remember. <laughs> yeah, you had to be running the right browser to be able to get the rich version. Yes. But I thought you, at first you could only be an exchange client to, to use that, and then it turned into a general POP3 client. But still wasn't available to everybody, right? Well, OWA was part of Exchange. It That's still right. is part of Exchange, right? Yeah. But it was just, it was the first time you saw the concept of Ajax, although they certainly didn't call it that. But they, it was really that first spa that you were on this page and stuff just kept appearing. Yeah. It would pop up, but it will pop other windows. Yes. But when those windows go away, the original window's still there and you continue. Is that a logical pattern? Would you do that today? Have one large window where you get a lot of pop-up windows coming in and out. Then other windows come in and out, but you always end up back at the main window. I think we try to avoid it today in the applications. Mm -hmm. I think I think that was actually one of the more complicated and user-unfriendly features that it had. Because you never really were sure where you were in the app. Yeah, and you could lose a window for sure. Easily, easily. You could easily pop the same window three times and then wonder what the heck happened. And if you close the peripheral windows, you're okay. You close the main window by accident, the whole thing disappears. Now you're really in trouble. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, window popping, not actually good technique. <laughs> so, not everything was perfect in, w in OWA. No, no, I don't think so. But it really is that launching point for this spa idea and Ajax as a whole. Yeah, we're, we're seeing more and more of this now. I mean, I got into this whole arena four or five years ago because actually I was getting ready to retire from this career. Right. And get into something completely different. Chinese medicine? 
No, no. I was thinking about, you know, spa treatments in general. But, uh, <laughs> no. Oh, jeez. I got really tired of the whole ASP.NET and the whole, um, you know, data. And I was into data access quite a bit and mm -hmm. SQL Server. And it just seems like we were going through the same motions over and over and over again. And then WPF and Silverlight started coming out. And I was like, you know, let me, let me try this and see where it goes. I really liked the, the different way and different approach to everything uh, of how you could have this really client-focused atmosphere. And I am not a designer by any means. Mm -hmm. But I love the idea of that. The app is built for the user. Right. But somewhere along the way, I think we lost our way with that. And we started building apps for how many data points can we stick on a screen? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, can I get everything in that database on my UI? There was one, uh, there was one project that I declined after understanding what the guy actually wanted. He wanted like the access designer query builder for his users. So I said, well, you could solve this problem. Just give everybody access. Yeah. If that's what you want, that's what you want. Yeah. But that is not an application. No, it's not. Yeah. And, and this has come up a few times over the course of today, and it, and it comes up many times, this whole, yeah, I want all 10,000 customers on the screen or, you know, the infinite scroller, that whole thing. I what can't believe I still had that conversation on this road trip yeah, today still going in on. 2012. Yeah. What, why do people want this? Like, what, what is the underlying need there? I, I think a lot of it is you go into these business user meetings, and I still do it, where people will say, well, I need that. Mm -hmm. you know, part of it is they want what they have, the good parts, mm -hmm. right. and the part they're comfortable with. But they want to change the parts they don't like. And what they don't realize sometimes is what they don't know what's behind the other door. Right. So they've got this, I think we were talking earlier, Carl, about a tree view, grid view, combo box, oh mixture control. Who would and do that? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I partially think this person was pulling my leg when we were having this conversation. But, but if you think about it, it's very WinForms-like kind of VB6-like control that we used to try to cram into those forums back then. Tree views were, were the du jour. I mean, it was the thing to do to have all this data. And you might have 10,000 items there. You might only see 30 at a time. But they wanted all the data. And then we started getting the idea of going and getting it on the fly. Yeah, virtual, virtual Virtualizing list boxes lists. and things, yeah. Which is a good step. But getting rid of that whole idea that you have to have a tree view or a grid is right. something that's very difficult to get across to users. And the first question should be, what do you want to do? And when they say, I want 10,000 years, no. Well, what do you want to do? What is, what your, is your job? What are you going to say, okay, I'm done with that task? And what would you have accomplished? Yeah. And that's harder. And as developers, it's really easy for us to say, okay, I'll give you a tree view. Right. But what's harder is to actually help them figure out what do they really need. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's, it's more rewarding that way. I, I also think there's a sort of a trust piece here. It's like people like to see that all of their stuff is lined up on the table. Right. It's sort of in front of them because they don't really believe that it's there. But you can give them that same sense with graphics and graphs and numbers, you know. Like you would see on a, on a well, let's look at the Gmail client, right? The gmail.com. You see the number of uh, emails in your inbox, but you don't see them all at the same time. You know they're there and you know you could go find them. But searching is what it's all about. And filtering and searching and sorting is, is how you, uh, you start with a number and or, or a my, graph. Yeah, and if it means your email client doesn't need to take 40 seconds to load and you can still access all 50,000 emails quickly, right. I'm okay with that. Yeah, no problem. Outcome. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. 
from free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what are the patterns? Like, what, where do you see an SPA really standing up? Is that's a, an optimal way to build an app? It really depends on what the user is trying to accomplish. But I always look at these big apps as being, first, try to figure out, is your app doing too many things? Mm -hmm. I see a lot of apps out there that are they're doing just about everything. And think about the functions inside your house. Mm -hmm. You got the plumbing and you got the electric, you got the dishwasher, you got everything. If you had an app that did all that stuff, it would, chances are it's not going to do all of them well. Mm -hmm. And then how long is it going to take you to deliver that as well? We're in this world of Agile. We've touched on a couple times today as sure. well. Mm. If you want to deliver faster and more by building smaller components and putting them together, you could have multiple spas that all talk to each other mm -hmm. and just build those with each your piece. And then you can have like monthly iteration cycles. That's where I see it really being uh, something that shines for people. Where it doesn't work is when somebody tries to take an app like Visual Studio right. and mm -hmm. put the whole thing into one page or right. Windows 8 app. Well, we, I mean, Visual Studio has become a Swiss Army knife. In fact, yes. most mature Microsoft products look like Swiss Army knives. I mean, Word is littered with features that represent a tiny fraction of the total number of users. So the, right. it just seems to be that people just, we keep adding to stuff. And you can see Microsoft's getting smarter, too, because Visual Studio, one of the first things that struck me when they had the revamp where they took all the colors out mm -hmm. right. originally was the big thing that people weren't talking about was they went from 40 icons, I think, in the toolbar down to like 18. Right. They figured out through some kind of diagnostics and checking out all this information that, you know what, these other 20 buttons, nobody ever clicks them. Right. Mm -hmm. Why are they there? You can still get to them, just not through the toolbar. Right. Just sort of distilling down the essence. And I think just further to go, like we were laughing about this whole idea of creating a quote unquote metro version of Studio. But in the end, you talk about the essence of Studio, it is the editor. Don't you want a super right. clean editor? Mm -hmm. Just I would the, love. a place to work that isn't surrounded by all that stuff? I would love a reimagined Visual Studio that was all about the code. And then all the other things I could just bring in through an app bar or something. Yeah, how many times do you have the solution window up and then 15 little panes in the bottom? Right, yeah. You can barely see the code yeah. right. anymore. The code always seems to take a back seat on that. And the only other thing I would add to that is, in some ways I feel like Visual Studio, maybe I'll blame this partially on XAML, has gotten away from that most essential thing, which is I need to see how my code is represented to the user as I'm writing it. Mm. I really want two views on that screen. And I know we're maybe we're a little ways off but clearly the stuff we all care about, that as I'm writing my code, seeing the screen twitch, especially XAML. Yeah. I mean, how many, we're, right, right now we're still, most of us are writing our XAML by hand and we're flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Let me see them side by side. I don't even flip at the, I don't even look at the designer and you can't even look at it unless you have sample data. And, and you know, what if you've got stuff that's done dynamically in code? I mean, you really have to run it to see what it's going to look like. And that seems, I feel like I'm in 1980s again once I'm in that mode. I write some code, run it. Oh, okay. Go back, write some more code, run it. Like, what happened to that visual part of Visual Studio? And it's been that way with since ASP.NET, really. You know, since or since ASP in Visual Studio, that uh, you you really don't get an ask an idea of what 
something looks like with dynamic content. I mean, you can get layout and boxes and know that the boxes are filled up, but you're not going to see anything that comes from real data or real life. John, you have to fix this. Okay. It's all on you, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think mean, it's one of the reasons there. we have, um, I think it's one of the reasons that web developers like, you know, the Chrome tools, the IE tools, the yeah. Firebug tools, mm-hmm. because you can actually run your app in the web mm. and you can change the code right there in the browser and see right. what's going to happen. Yeah. And we need that in Visual Studio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you recognizing that there, there are clear development metaphors out there that get back to what we loved and what got us in development in the first place, which is that our code did stuff. Mm. And I think the closer we get to seeing that, the better off we are. Yeah, I think long going are the days where you write code for a week at a time, then press run and compile, mm. which is what I did at my first job out of college. Yeah. So don't press that compile button. That costs a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you get back to the truth of it, which is it absolutely did. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that you would debug your code by executing it was unacceptable. Exactly. Right? Run, running card stacks through cost a lot of money. So you would read each one of your cards in detail until you knew for sure this would work and this was right. It was too costly to do it any other way. I think we're still shaking off those old metaphors of that, that kind of constraint because the constraint doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So getting back to your Pluralsight course, the SPA, Single Page Application course, the first couple of modules were all about server-side plumbing. And I wonder how much of that goes away with, uh, with uh, Azure Mobile Services. I, th- I think a lot of it can. And honestly, what I built in the back end with the unit of work and the repository and all that... I often argue with myself on, do you mm-hmm. need all those layers? Right. Or can you just use something like Entity Framework and Hibernate, which has like a built-in unit of work repository pattern built into it already. Right, right. And if you put that stuff up into the cloud and you're just exposing the Ajaxian services, mm. really you're starting off with an Azure site, mobile services, and then you can build on top of that, you know, Windows Phone, Windows 8, Spa, whatever you want. So really, I think you're right. The first couple of layers there, unless you're building something on today's architecture... Look yeah. at what's coming now, what's already starting to come available. You could really just do it in the cloud. Well, let's dive down into why you would want that sort of high-level approach versus when you would not. I mean, I really appreciated knowing what's, what's under the hood up there and what's going on. And, you know, what factory gets called when and what does unit of work do? I like, like knowing that stuff because now I know when I make a call to, through Windows Mobile Services what's actually happening. So, so that begs the question, you know, what are the telltale signs that we should be doing it the hard way uh, versus using, uh, you know, a higher level service? I, th- I think the big thing is is the testing level. When you break things down different pieces, I can actually unit test my application and know exactly where something's breaking. So when I make a change in production later on, you know, it's 2 in the morning, something's live, 50,000 people are using it. If it breaks, I can quickly check out the change that I just made to fix it and see what tests are breaking, which ones aren't. When you've got this black box, it's a lot harder to figure out, okay, I made a change. Something might have broken. You can't really test that. People write unit tests, but they, they're actually integration tests. Mm-hmm. But that begs the, the question, what should break in a, in a high level? You know, if it's all just like, here's my model, now mm-hmm. go do it. You know, what would break that you need to be aware of? Most of the time I see things on the lines of having, uh, well, connect- connectivity is still an issue. Mm-hmm. If connectivity breaks down, you have to handle that. Uh, sometimes you just don't get a connection, like right. in this room. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, other times it turns <laughs> out to be the data. Some kind of, You put in some data that just nobody ever thought would ever actually go yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And a lot of times it ends up being globalization type things, you know, localization with culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, different ways of entering dates, different ways of, of notation for currencies. These things all bite you because you, you're stuck in the little one way you do things. Think about phone numbers. How many right. times do you go to a site? Oh, yeah. If you go to ten, any 10 sites, I challenge you to do this. Pay any 10 sites for entering a phone number. I'll bet you you end up with at least eight different ways to enter a phone number. Mm -hmm. Formatting-wise. Exactly. Uh, postal codes. Yes, postal codes, yeah. especially global ones. Global postal codes, yeah. They're not, not we assume too much so so often. It's much easier. Would, would you like to allow this application to use your location? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, what was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, globalization. Oh, yeah. Users, far weirder when it comes to data input and data entry than test, uh, test frameworks. This is a point Richard made in his uh, ALM talk. That, uh, the, the, you know, if, if a user is going to, if, if it can be copied and pasted into a field, it will be. It, it always will be. And, you know, number of characters that are in there, the things that they type, the keys they'll press. Mm. I mean, it really could be just about anything, especially clipboard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've seen some strange things going to apps that broke with them where somebody had something in the clipboard from an email and pasted it in. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's awful personal information, too. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be in your clipboard. Exactly. We need a, we need a filter for clipboards. So, um, uh, as I said before, I really like the way you span a lot of tools and your, your sort of tool set changes, as you even said in your talk before the show. You like to go with the latest gadgets and the latest thing that's, uh, that's looking good. And, you know, if it works and it's stable, you're not averse to, to switching. But it seems like there are some tools that uh, that have sort of made their way into even into Studio and NuGet. And when you create a new template, you know, Knockout is there, jQuery is there, you know. So there are the, the tools that we can't do without. But what are some of the uh, what are some of the the cool uh, the tools that people may not know about uh, when developing an SPA? And that's a good point. And jQuery is, is definitely popular. Knockouts is grown with its well. Another big one is uh, Backbone. Mm -hmm. People use Backbone quite a bit. It's more of an MVC-style JavaScript framework. So if you're not into the MVVM-ish world, you can go with uh, Backbone to do something. And you wouldn't want to use every library you can find. I always challenge people, just like in the .NET world, don't pull a DLL in for anything unless you absolutely have a need for it. Mm -hmm. Because now you have to support it. And I see this a lot of places where they'll pull in some third, part, third parties library, component one, Telerik, infradistics, and they'll pull it in to use one widget. But then they'll be like, I need that widget. Component one is this great widget. And I pull that in here. But then I say, all right, well, I, they've got 40 other widgets. Let me use every other one that they got. Right. And they may not use them correctly or rightly or may not be in the most appropriate place. Use the ones you need and how you need them. And in the JavaScript world, it's the same way. You just pull in the libraries that are going to be useful to you. Just because John Papa uses 40 libraries doesn't mean you pull in all 40 libraries. Well, and, and like you said, just because one worked, well, they all must be great. Let's use them all. <laughs> Absolutely. One good, more better. Or worse, right. so how, how would I use a control from every third-party vendor? That's oh, yeah. That's oh, awesome. There you go. That's some good fun. I, I see a lot of those apps, too. <laughs> but what's really cool, though, is that sometimes it hits you, oh, yeah, it's just JavaScript. Like, it's so vanilla. Like, it's so compliant that you can use TypeScript and jQuery together and you can use uh, things that you nobody had thought about putting together maybe together in the same application. Kind of like building a Reese, right? Yeah. Chocolate and peanut butter? Yeah. 
I don't like peanut butter, but that's just me. Uh, <laughs> Breeze. You talked about Breeze. Breeze, yeah. Yeah, Breeze is a newer one. It's uh, written, I should say, disclaimer, written by a good friend of mine, Ward Bell, uh, his company, yeah. Idea Blade. Yeah, we like Ward. But all through writing this Code Camper Spa, Ward was along there. He's my like, tech reviewer as I went through. So he saw me building this manual data context. Right. And in the background, he, uh, he let me know this up front. He was basically taking advice on what to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he learned mostly what not to do when I was writing the data context. <laughs> it was very painful to do all this yourself. And Breeze handles all those uh, object caching, synchronization, AJAX calls, all the stuff that makes it hard to get data. So all you have to do is say, go get my data from this set, order it, sort it, uh, and pulls it back in. It kind of gives you a link on the client, hmm. which, quite frankly, makes it a lot easier. Link to JavaScript. Link to JavaScript, which is a library for that too. Nice. There is. But, but, it's, but, I mean, but it's what you're basically describing is being able to walk through that object cache inside of JavaScript. It's pretty exciting. It is. It's good because if you just get AJAX, as you know, you're just getting the data one time. Right. What do you do with it after you have it? Yeah. Got to put it somewhere because otherwise you're going to throw it out and do it again. Yes. Or you can put it in a hidden field on the, on the form. Who would do that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Richard, guess what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's the time in the show when we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you're all members, right? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> And today's winner is Noel Hanlon from Stoughton, Massachusetts. Everybody say, hi, Noel. Hi, Hi, Noel. Man, he is stoked right now as he's driving to work. (laughs) So if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and sign up for the fan club. We have thousands of members now, and every December, not just every show we're giving away stuff, but every December we're going to give away $5,000 worth of cool technology handpicked by Richard and I, and we've been asking all our guests, if they had five grand to spend on just gadgets, what would you get? John Papa. On any technology gadget? Brand. Any technology. Well, right now, I'd have to say I get myself a Surface because it's brand new and it's the latest thing. Yep. You'd get a six-pack of Surfaces. <laughs> I'd get a lot of Surfaces. I have six people in my family, man. There you go. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> RTs for all of them, which is really quality of life for you doing Absolutely. the tech support, right? They can't mess them up that much. There's no way they can bugger these things up. Yeah, yeah. That's that's where I'd go with it. RT, I'd get a Pro, though. Well, yeah. I'd have to wait, wouldn't I? Yeah, that's not till January. It's a little more money, too. But that's fine. They could only get maybe three of them. That's okay. My three year old doesn't need one. <laughs> some of our some of our popular thoughts have included a sixty four core machine in the past, but you know, I think uh I think Don Syme was the only one who salivated when we suggested that. And um n- now we're thinking a three D printer. Hmm. Three D printer, my ooh yeah, I heard some ooh. Uh, yeah, you you guys agree? Yeah. The, yeah, the new UltraBot's about twenty five hundred bucks, right? Then uh, say a surface thirteen hundred for a surface, and uh, maybe a Wacom tablet. So you have something to draw with, so you can make those three D drawings nice and precisely, and a bit of software. I think you might be there. You might be there. We could have used one on the road trip. Remember that little thingy that broke on the on the shade? That's right. If I could, if I'd had a three D printer with me, we could have made a new little plastic part to fit into that perfectly and tighten it down, and it wouldn't have broken. That's right. Or you could have gone to Home Depot. I did. Yeah. <laughs> And I got a washer, but it's nowhere near as cool. That's it would have right. been way cooler to make a little plastic <laughs> widget and fit it in there exactly. And once we have a 3D printer that can make a 3D printer, then I'm done. I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm done. Mr. Joe Healy, you have a question. John, obviously a big fan. I'm here to listen to you, but when are you getting rid of your start button? 
My start button in Windows 8? Another start button you had on your screen while you were doing your demos earlier. Oh, that was Windows 7. Ah, you're right. <laughs> when are you, had when a are you getting rid of your start button? <laughs> really? You want when, us when to I keep get that question in the show? <laughs> <laughs> That's a heckle. That's not a question. When a, when a Surface Pro comes out. All right. That's when I will do it because so RT. I want the full experience so I can run demos and Visual Studio and everything. Cool. All right. So pro dev aspect versus family aspect. Yeah, and touch. It wouldn't very do very well to touch on my Sony VR right now, other than putting a lot of smudges on it. <laughs> well, I've got a bunch of screens that are smudged up now because I keep thinking they're touch. Everything I should be touch. I touched an ATM yesterday. <laughs> to say, there was a lot of Purell after that, but it was, I presumed it was a touchscreen. Did it you visit the doctor right after yeah. this? <laughs> I got my money. So, and I got my money in Florida, too, so who knows what was on the money. Anyway, I the got The really funny thing to do is go to do this. You can go to Best Buy, go to the computer department, just hang out and look and watch how many people touch all the non-touchable items yeah. at Best Buy. <laughs> It's really uncanny. So what else have you been doing for uh, on Pluralsight besides the SPA course? So doing, doing quite a bit, actually. So before I did the spa course, I did a knockout course, which is like a 101, get you started. Uh, and then Dan Wallin and I worked on a Windows 8 introductory course uh, last year, and we revamped it when the release came out a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, We revamped it because obviously things changed since build version 1 to build version 2. Right, uh, and that was fun. Went through there. Actually, the content was the same. It was just all the environment was different. Right. So there was very little to change, other than I had to remember what I did and actually go over and redo it again. It is kind of remarkable how raw WinRT and that whole development experience was a year ago. Yeah. And how many changes? How many libraries? How many things have come and gone yep. along the way to refining the development experience? I mean, overall, the product didn't look all that different when they were done, but how we build software has changed a lot. Oh, even just little things like I love MVVM and data binding. Mm -hmm. And when I first did the course, I wanted to include something on how to do some basics with that. But the code I had to write to get it to work back in the initial version, the consumer preview, right. whatever it was called, uh, was very painful. Yeah. So and it was it was alpha basically. Sure. So I, that's one of the first things I did is I added actually MVVM stuff to this intro course because now you can do it. Now it's easy. Right. And yep. are you building WinJS apps? Are you building Windows Store apps with JavaScript, HTML, CSS? I've done a little of each. Uh, in that course, Dan does the WinJS and I do the XAML side of mm -hmm. it just to show both ways. Mm. And we've actually talked a lot because Dan and I have similar backgrounds. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if we built an app today and I've built one of each, mm -hmm. which way would you go? And honestly, my experience has been good with both. But mm -hmm. I probably stick with XAML because I have more XAML. And I, I love the Silverlight world of that side of things. Sure. But doing the spa stuff, I could easily take some of these things like CodeCamper and port them over to a Windows 8 well, app. Well, and that's that's the question is, like, how much of this great client side, these JavaScript libraries can go into a Windows Store app and still pass the WAC test? I, you know, I'm not sure if there's a... That'd be a cool way to actually create a list of those on some website of which ones yeah. wouldn't get whacked and which ones would. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I know people tried things like Knockout and jQuery in there and... And, and they seem to work fine. Because in yeah. the end, it's, it's all yeah. compiled in anyway. It's not like you're a li you're attaching the libraries to the project. It's, right. a, it's a compiled executable. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, and I wrote a little library. It's about 150 lines of JavaScript called Toaster, mm -hmm. which is uh, it's kind of like SignalR modeled after it. Right. No E in Toaster. And the idea was just having nice little alerts that pop up as you mm -hmm. go and be able to stack the toasts. Mm -hmm. And that's something I put into a, a small app that I've been demoing that we can use. So little things can work. 
The, the place I would be cautious of is the controls that are built into Windows have that experience yeah, built in. Like right. You could seriously bypass the UI requirements. And, right. And that's where you would probably fail is because you're not doing things in the Windows Store-ish way. Yeah, they, they call them the, you know, the animation library. Basically, it's the uh, CPU-independent libraries that are built into Windows. Mm -hmm. So they run on the GPU for you. And you can't just do that yourself. Right. So if you use their controls, you get all that out of the box. If you use controls that are pulled in through like a jQuery UI, you're not going to get that out of the box. Right. Yeah. Just having JavaScript, HTML-based controls, you're not going to get a lot of that capability. The other side of it that seems important in my mind is it's the techniques you use that you stay good at. You, you know, you can only write so much code in a given day, and it's all well and fine to switch languages somewhat. But it's, to me, at this moment, C-sharp XAML still seems to have the broadest reach. It's not just Win 8. It's also the, in the phone. It's also, uh, you know, still regular development. Uh, it's still a lot of client-side development, uh, server-side development as well. It seems to be everywhere. And the, the HTML is still in a particular narrow angle. Yeah, if you're doing, if really, if you're doing C-sharp, you're doing Microsoft development. Mm -hmm. I mean, XAML's probably something you've touched. C-sharp is almost definitely something yeah. you've touched yeah. along the way. Well, it really does seem to say, you know, why do you want to relearn your whole stack of skills if that's something you can use? Sure. You know, until you have a reason not to, I wouldn't. Yeah. But the the web world, the nice thing with that is you can get people in. Like Joe Healy was mentioning earlier, he had a, a an event he went to where he had 80 people there, and he didn't know any of them, which is odd for Joe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know? He knows everybody in Florida. They all liked him, too, That's because right. they didn't know who he was. If you want to send him a... If you want to send him a postcard, just just address it to Joe, Florida. <laughs> He'll get it. Yeah, the, the point with that is uh, we're not trying necessarily for all the XAML developers to go, oh, no, i got to go to JavaScript. It's about a net new audience. Um, there was a thing John talked about, Refresh Miami, got invited to speak down there. In the middle of a hurricane, 80 HTML JavaScript developers come out. It was the first leg of Hurricane Sandy. Come out in this pouring rain to hear me talk about this stuff. They're sitting there listening. This is incredible. I'm basically just showing them, hey, look, HTML, CSS, whoop, we got an app. This is beautiful. Now put in some controls, move it along. Um, they got really excited about it. If I'm doing a XAML C-sharp talk with these guys, they're not coming out. Because um, they're switching their tool set. Right. But what you really showed is, hey, you know that skill you have? You can make more money with it. Here's a Amen. whole other area you can work in. And these guys are smart. They smell a big market coming. Sure. They want a piece of that big market. In fact, I'm going back um, November 15th. We've got an all-day Saturday hackathon with them in, uh, in a startup colo down there. And it should be a pretty killer event. Same thing happened in uh, Fort Walton Beach. Had a hackathon up there. HTML, JavaScript, designer comes in because his boss has basically said, you will be here to learn this. And uh, I think he was planning on sneaking out if I forced the C-sharp a little too hard. Mm -hmm. Start off by showing him HTML and JavaScript. End of the day, he has this super killer app up and going. I asked him later, I said, what would you have done if, uh, you know, we kind of drove you down the XAML route today? He goes, man, I would have snuck out of here at 10 a.m. You would have never seen me again. <laughs> so it's that net new, and that's, that's something that's pretty exciting. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. 
No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. But I think it gets back to the most essential thing, which is don't surrender the skills you've got just to retrain for the sake of retraining. That said, TypeScript looks an awful lot like C Sharp these days, man. And guess sure. what I'm working on for Pluralsight right now? No. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, Dan and I are putting together a TypeScript fundamentals course on it because of that. Because we, we actually started polling people, you know, who's interested? Mm-hmm. And the people, and this is all informal polls that we did. The people we talk to, the web developers out there at large who already love JavaScript are like, you know, not so interested. I'm comfortable with writing it. Sure. It's just going to write what I already do anyway. Yeah. The people who are in the .NET world, they, they love this idea. It's like a bridge to JavaScript for them. They're, you know, I hear comments like, wow, you know, I can actually have an int. That's great. I'm, I feel better. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm happy now. I right. create class. There is no class in JavaScript. Sure, now sure. you can with this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting to see that byplay back and forth as to which ones make more sense. But the, I mean, so much of SPA seems to be HTML5 centric, and I it, guess it, it's just not true. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I think it's not true. I think that's where it spawned from mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and a lot of the more popular web guys out there kind of kind of pitched in that direction. But I, I look at it as much broader of look at all the different technologies we have. Mm-hmm. We're really moving in that direction. Gone is the day of the. We don't talk about N tier a whole lot anymore. Yeah, no. you know, and thick server is. Just much. talk about software. We're talking about cloud. We're talking about devices. Mm-hmm. And with this, Spa really folds nicely with it. We still have end here. We're just not talking about it anymore. It's not a big deal. We've already been there and done that. Yeah. yeah. And we've got that figured out. It's just a, a showing off service endpoints on the back end and then clients that can pick up and do with it. I think the far bigger thing, and I think it's one of the things that Spa speaks to, is utilizing that client better. Yes. So I, it still comes back to what tasks, like a sort task is a classic one. Where is that? Should that happen? Is that on the server or is that on the client? I think it, it, it depends. There's always that it depends, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going and looking at 100,000 records and you want to go get the first X amount, that sort, if you know what it's going to be, you should start with that on the server. Sure. Don't haul the 100,000 rows. It's not right. the sort that's the big deal. It's the 100,000 rows that's the big deal. Yeah. You change that sort and it's going to change what's on the client. You don't have all that data. Then it should go back to the server and get that data mm-hmm. and refresh. Meanwhile, the data you already got, leave it on the client. Mm-hmm. Leave it in a cache. Yeah. That way, if they go back to that data, they have it. So, it's constraining resources, the wire. Yes. We're still there. Yeah. Still constrained <laughs> by the wire. Are there really good patterns for offline data storage? And I, I know that there are technologies that you could use isolated storage and things like that. But mm-hmm. are there really good patterns that are established for, you know, you, you want to go to a data store. Uh, it's not there, but you do have some cache data. You show that you have that you're offline mode or whatever, uh, you know. How, what are the sort of, and I almost hesitate to say best practices, but what are the, <laughs> what are the good ideas? That's, that's actually something that I oddly struggled with when I built some of the spa apps I've done is I didn't think I'd hit this issue, mm-hmm. but I had an app, for example, as Carl's describing, where I need to figure out first, is that data in local storage? So mm-hmm. I'm coming out of Tombstone, for example. You know, it's just an app that I have. Somebody reopened the browser. First, I got to check local storage for it. Then I've got to check to see, do I have it in cache? Mm-hmm. Then I got to check if I don't have that to go hit the server. Maybe the server doesn't even have it. So mm-hmm. you need to more <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you, that, those kind of patterns are, there's no automatic magic for it. Right. But you have to think through what does the user want? And I'll tell you, as far as best practices go, this is something that I've actually coded differently in multiple apps hmm. based upon what the user was expecting. 
Because I can imagine it should be a standard behavior of an application when it's offline. Like it should let your user know, hey, you're offline. Maybe you should pause what you're doing right here, go make a connection, and try again. Um, but or you know, do you want to use the last data cache that we that we worked with? Uh, I, you know, I don't know what the what the standard behavior should look like. Well, the first choice you mentioned is, you know, if you have an offline app. Once the app detects offline, you got to tell the user, you're offline, and then do you want them to be able to continue or not? Right. If Should you don't, we it's be easy. collecting data, for example. Right. You know, taking pictures, entering names or whatever, or what, it, you know, collecting data, fine. And then yep. uh, a mechanism to synchronize that up when we make a connection. Yeah, like I wrote a Twitter app when Windows Phone first came out, and mm -hmm. the first thing I did is I let it go offline, I detected when it was offline, and I would save one tweet. When you try to tweet it and send it out there, if it failed, the decision I made was, I'm going to save that tweet for you and tell the user, I'll send it when it's available. Mm -hmm. But I'd only save one. Yeah, that was kind one. of the cue to the user that, I gave you one. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it again. There's no need for you to tweet. <laughs> well, there's no need for you to tweet when you're offline, right? Exactly. Yeah. Who would do that? You know, <laughs> it's kind of silly. You're really hooked on Twitter then. Yeah, you must be. <laughs> My hands are shaking over here, man. I'm going to send about a million tweets about what I'm doing right now, and then when I go online, I'll send them all up. <laughs> but coping with, especially in a, in a browser, coping with a disconnected state is not that easy. I mean, no. browsers barf. They get upset. You know, there's not an awful lot of care and feeding around you're in a disconnected state. You know, don't continue. Right. And if you don't use a library for it, mm -hmm. you can actually write code to detect the codes that come back from HTTP servers and such. So you can detect those things and write elegant code to figure out how you respond. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice to be able to have a library that helps you get through that. Well, and I'm terrified that you've just spoken of two libraries that don't exist. I thought every JavaScript library already existed. I like, bet you there's a hundred that do that already. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, one would hope. And, and the two being, one is just the general, how do I manage disconnected state? And the other one being the, it, do I have a local cache of this or should I go get it? Just, right. you know, all I should do is be specifying in my code, you know, I'm, I, I need this information. Where it comes from, figure it out. And then I am a big proponent in sort of defining what those behavior should be across the board and that we can all agree on. Yes. So that applications behave the same way when in that situation, we know what to expect. We're not surprised by it. And one of the patterns I've fallen into is I at least removed one of the symptoms out of mm -hmm. there of the local storage. So when I load my app up, whether it's an app or it's a browser, first thing I do is I say when that app comes out of its tomb stating, mm -hmm. borrow yeah. Windows 7 uh, analogy, I first check local storage. I rehydrate the view model that I mm -hmm. have, that screen. And then I don't look at the local storage again. At that point, it's literally just either in my cache or it's on the server. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've seen libraries, and something I suggested to the Breeze folks is actually, I'm tired of writing, check local. If it ain't there, check server. Right. right. I wish there was an option I could define in configuration. Yeah. Because I realize not everybody wants to do that. Mm -hmm. But to say, hey, do this step for me. Because you're right. If I just want the data. I don't care where it is. Right. Yeah. And there's still a sort of a threshold of how old is that local store. Then you need expirations. Right. And, yeah. well, and you need the user to, to know, and they will decide whether to use it or not. Okay. You've got to decide FIFO or LIFO, first in, last in. Yeah. Who's going to win in these situations? Right. And then, I mean, you get back to the customer just wants the app to work. I don't, I don't know how many would actually even understand if you told them whether it was local or, yeah. or remote and what that would actually mean. And maybe it's just an age. But these are all interesting problems. Although, if, I mean, at this point, the customer's been educated. If you're in a browser and you're disconnected, it dies. Yep. Yeah. So, Sorry. Yeah. Boom. Well, that's where something like SignalR would be awesome, too, in this, mm -hmm. where you've got reverse Ajax, where if you're connected, 
automatically or cache gets these pings and says, hey, you know, that Richard data that I've got up here, mm. I'm going to change that. Yeah, here's the new stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's really interesting twists and turns on this. Uh, and, I mean, we haven't even gotten into the really scary things, stuff like phone gap. Just, you know, talk about taking SPA to the ultimate extent. Yep, write code once and it runs everywhere. Yeah, well, and, and also just sort of not? living in a wrapper. I, <laughs> you know, we're doing whole shows on that subject alone, yeah. more on the tablet side because yeah. of that exact complaint. But you start talking about these hosting environments that basically confine you to a page. Can you live here? I don't, I don't know the answers to all those things yet. You know, Nor do I, which that's by my silence. <laughs> <laughs> all right, take a question. Mr. Festino has a question. Great. John, I got a question for you. I went to a, a recent conference on responsive web design. A lot of the client-side uh, uh, talk you were giving here today and really found a good importance for, you know, um, companies to really scale to multiple devices for their application. They're going to lose business. You know, that's really the bottom line. And developers uh, love apps, right? Love writing apps, want to monetize. When do you see those two worlds kind of coming together? And, uh, you know, I you know we got a phone gap story kind of, you know, could could play a little bit there, but really I'm um, looking for um, monetization, you know, from a developer standpoint, yet still being responsive. So are you talking about, let me ask you a question back, Russ, are you talking about building a app for a particular platform like Windows 8 and Windows Phone, but then taking it to other platforms? Uh, that's correct, yeah. I mean, it's really bottom line, yeah. That's, uh, it's actually, it's a tough question. Thank you. <laughs> so having something that you write, let's say I write a really cool app like uh, a recipe app or a cookbook app hey, for some kind of a device. Yeah. Who, would, who would do that? I Russ can't imagine. would do that, actually. <laughs> so in, inside of Windows 8, you start there, you wrote it in XAML, you showed us the code, and you've got that app that's responsive inside the device itself. So inside your surface, we can see the portrait, the landscape, and all that, and you've got different views. Works great. So you see Microsoft's already built that concept in there. Next step, you make a million dollars, you want to share a half with me, I'm okay with that. Then we decide to take it to other platforms. Well, then do you take that XAML and automatically move to Windows Phone? Well, what if you go beyond XAML, now you want to put it on other devices, you want to use HTML. How do you mm -hmm. get there? Yeah. My honest answer is the most successful apps I've seen is a different version for each OS, different device. Writing natively. Writing native, because if you're going to take advantage of native stuff, it just seems to flow. And if you're not going to take advantage of native stuff, that's where the HTML side comes in really play for mm -hmm. me. So like that CodeCamp wrap I wrote, that'll run on iPhone, Android, Windows. Right. And I use a tool called uh, Electric Mobile Studio, which is now actually there's, a, I think, a trial version that you can synchronize and actually integrates with Visual Studio. It'll run it on an iPhone, an iPad, or any of those kind of devices and actually let you show you how the app's going to look in responsive mode. So when I wrote my spa, I actually put up like seven or eight screens of different sizes to see, okay, which one looks wrong so I could change them as I go through it, which is a real pain because if you've ever done any web design, you end up with Safari and Opera and Firefox and Chrome and IE of four different flavors, and that's hard to debug. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of browsers. So I think I, think I answered you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said uh, electric what? What is it? Electric Mobile Studio. And that's a tool, a client-side tool, right? It's a client-side tool. It's a pay tool. But there's also a website that you mentioned in your course where you can go bring it to you, – you paste in the URL to your app, and then it shows you what it would look like on You really did watch my course. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think it's uh, responsinator.com. That's it, responsinator. Now, uh, you can, it's, use is limited, I guess, in, in those. It is limited. It, it tries to put emulators. the more standard phones and tablet device sizes that are out there. Like, for example, I don't even think the Windows ones are on there yet. Yeah. Um, but basically, you type in the URL, and it has about 20 different iframes on the page. 
yeah. it shows you what it'll look like, and they're interactive. So it's a poor man's version of the tool, which is free. Yeah, and it doesn't go as far as a full emulator, but it gives you an idea of what it's going to look like, which it's is really what you're... Definitely better than buying a device for each kind. Right. Or just yeah. running all those browsers can make you crazy, too. It's a, it's a constant problem when you really going to test everything. Yes. And, and they've gotten out of hand now. They make too many browsers. We can talk to Joe about that. So, John, single-page applications, spas. Uh, I know that there's a few out there that I'm using. You know, I use the Gmail client, and I use, I don't know if you would call Expedia a spa, but, you know, certainly when you go to a website where they have a, a phone client, you know, they're looking, uh, you know, they have a client that's basically optimized for a device, usually a spa. Uh, is this uh, how are the spas gaining ground in the market? I think there's there's two flavors of spas. I think yes, to be very uh, blunt, there's two flavors of spas. Though there's the spas that people kind of feel are spa webish, like Gmail and the Facebooks and the Expedia's, those kind of things that are very web related. Then there's the spas that are more device specific, like the Windows 8 apps and whatnot. Appy. Yeah, very happy. Happy. Mm -hmm. And think about it this way. Let me turn around on you. When you buy with whatever device you have, Windows 8, whatever, when you buy a thing from a store in their market, are you more happy to buy that as an app or as the website version? Well, and this is a question we talk about all the time on the tablet show, which is that most people are willing to spend money on an app, but not willing to spend money just to access a website. Right. And what if that website version was free, but had the same functionality as the app that you pay? Dollar ninety nine for hmm. would people use that website over the app? And I, I don't think there's a clear answer to that, but I've seen a real. Some people have very strong feelings one way or the other. Well, I'll tell you what: if it worked on all my devices, which is whereas I could only get the app on one device, yeah, I probably would. And I think that answer is what a lot of people get down to: mm -hmm. to say if I could get the functionality of my app inside the browser on there, absolutely, because I, I could use it on mine, my wife's, my kids, and my work device. And well, that's where Spa really comes in. And can you write one app that is accessible on all devices and still gives a, con a consistent and, and appropriate UI for each screen size? For, depending upon what you're building, yes. If you're building an app that's really leveraging the browser stuff, you can with Spa. And when you want to get into accessing all the features that are specific to the device, that's where it gets more problematic. Right. Something like PhoneGap is easier. Mm -hmm. PhoneGap is the way there. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, John Popper. Let's give John a big hand. And thanks for listening to .NET Rocks! Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. 
For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...